I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings 21. And though it's been uh, several weeks since uh, we've done so, you and I have been looking together at the life and times of the prophet Elijah. And since it's been a while, and since some of you might be tuning in uh, from online for the first time, uh, it's worth reminding ourselves where we've been. Elijah lives during a time in which God's people uh, have been divided into two nations. There's Judah to the south, and there's Israel to the north. And under King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, Israel has increasingly turned its back on God and embraced the idols of the surrounding nations. And for this reason, God speaks through Elijah to expose the emptiness of these idols and to call his people, and specifically to call his kings, to turn from those idols and to turn back to him. And in one of the major themes in the book of Kings is, as we said last time, that leadership matters. I quoted last time a commentator who likened uh, the author of the book of Kings to a spotlight. His focus as uh, an author swings back and forth from Judah uh, to Israel in search of the promised king who would lead God's people in righteousness so that they might experience God's promised blessings in the land. And the last three chapters of 1 Kings comes to focus in in a particular way on this point as they zoom in on King Ahab. These last three chapters give us a a three-paneled picture of the kingship in Israel. Chapter 20, uh, the first panel showed us Israel's need for a king who would faithfully and relentlessly pursue victory over God's enemies. And our passage today is the second panel in this picture, and it expresses Israel's great need for a king. Only this time, the message is that Israel stands in need of a righteous, merciful king who will secure and not steal the promised blessings of God. And so we'll see this by looking at the wicked king who covets, who gets caught, and who is contrite. And his shortcomings will show us that the nature of the needed uh, king or the the nature of the the king that we need, and we'll see how God meets that need by providing this king, a king needed not only by Israel, but also by you and by me. And so let's look now at 1 Kings 21. Now, Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed, and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. 
So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, and she sent the letters to the elders and leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. And so they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. And then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he is gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my king? Or, O my enemy, he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly, utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin." And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of his, of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring disaster upon his house. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Oh, Father, as we open now your holy and perfect word, our prayer is simply this, that we would see our need for a righteous king. And seeing our need, we would then see the king that you have provided in all his beauty, the most handsome of the sons of men, the one with grace upon his lips. Lord, the one who is blessed forever. 
Help us to see this king in these words this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, when we finish reading uh, 1 Kings 20, the prophet of the Lord had uh, come to Ahab with a word of judgment. Because Ahab had not obeyed God and destroyed the enemies whom God had given into his hands, God told Ahab that he would die at his enemies' hands. And so chapter 20 ends, and the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. In chapter 21, Ahab had perked up a bit. A new idea had come into his mind, and thoughts of the doom and gloom prophets of God had disappeared. There was a beautiful vineyard that lay outside the window of his summer home at Jezreel. It was just the thing to take his mind off the grim prognostications of these prophets. So Ahab sets out to find the vineyard's owner. His name is Naboth of Jezreel. He's a a well-off local His vineyard was the family farm and it had belonged to his people likely for uh, several hundred years. And it's exactly this point that would prove problematic for Ahab. Because when Ahab makes an offer to uh, Naboth, Naboth turns him down because he will not part with the inheritance of his fathers, verse 3. Now, this wasn't simply uh, uh, Naboth being nostalgic for the home that he uh, grew up in, nor was it him just being difficult, driving a hard bargain. Naboth's answer suggests that he was a pious, God-fearing Israelite. When Naboth turned down uh, Ahab, he likely had in mind the land laws which God had given to his people in Leviticus 25. There, God tells his people that when they come into the land that he was leading them to, property should not be sold forever because the land belonged to him. If a man was financially in trouble, he could sell his land, but that was just for a time, up to 49 years, and then it was to be restored to his family. Now, while these laws provided some economic protections, God commanded his people not to permanently sell off the land Because ultimately, the land was not theirs to sell. These laws were meant to be a reminder that God was the true landlord of Israel. And from the richest to the poorest, they enjoyed that land because God had given it to them according to his promise. So when Ahab comes to Naboth seeking to buy this family land, since there's no economic necessity that would require him to sell it, he declines the king's offer. Now, certainly saying yes to the king would have been easier. It probably would have been more profitable. But Naboth holds on to the land which had been given to him by God and to his, it was given to his family. Now, Naboth's rationale would have been largely incomprehensible to an idol worshiper like Ahab. He didn't have categories for this sort of humble resolution to obey God. And as such, Ahab's passions begin to stir in him, and all he knows is that there is something that he wants, but he can't have. He wants it, but he can't obtain it, making us think of James' words in chapter, James chapter 4. So Ahab storms off to his bedroom to pout, and Jezebel notices the adolescent behavior, and she laughs at Ahab when she finds out what has gotten him into this tizzy. She says, is that it? Man up! You're the king! Watch how it's done! Now, Jezebel is the type of woman who should send a shiver up your spine. 
We get a sense of just how ruthless she is by how simple and decisive the next steps are related to us. Treachery and bloodlust are, are second nature to this woman. It, it comes easy to her that she would hatch a plot to knock off Naboth, and so, so she fires off these letters to, on royal stationery to the leading men of Naboth's town. And the men of Jezreel call a feast. They set things up so that these two unsavory characters would bring their false accusations against Naboth. And notice how though Jezebel's plot is rotted through and through, she still made sure it would have the veneer of justice as she made sure that there was at least the two required witnesses to bring the charge against Naboth. So the trap is, is set, it's sprung, and innocent Naboth is stoned to death. Jezebel brings the reports back to Ahab. The vineyard is yours. Go take it. And this is exactly what Ahab does. Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. You can almost see the, the dark clouds lifting uh, from, from Ahab and his lips curling into a smile as he goes down to take his new property. Though Jezebel does the deed, make no mistake, Ahab's names are on the documents. He's the murderous king who will be held to account in due time. Now here we need to pause to help us to understand the true nature of the, the horror of what has happened. Because the king covets Naboth's vineyard, breaking the 10th commandment. He, he send, false witnesses are sent uh, against this innocent man, breaking the 9th commandment, resulting in his murder, breaking the 6th commandment, so that the king can steal the desired vineyard, breaking the 8th commandment. At, at minimum, four commandments are broken in this ordeal. Clearly, great evil has been perpetrated. But just how great this evil is requires us to zoom out for a moment to consider what it means for Ahab as the king to conduct himself in this way. To understand this, we need to see that the idea of kingship is one that runs throughout the whole Bible. Already in the Garden of Eden, Adam, the first man, functioned like a king under God. He was made in the image of God, the great king, and he was to exercise dominion or rule over the garden. Adam's role was to, to care for the, the land and to keep it or guard it. And in this role, of course, Adam failed when he sinned against God. When Adam sinned and rejected God's ultimate authority, Rather than freeing himself from any higher power, he plunged himself into miserable servitude to his tempter. The man and all his offspring uh, who was made to rule over the garden came under the tyrannical rule of Satan himself. This is the scripture's teaching. Because of sin, we are by nature miserable yet willing subjects of the domain of darkness. We're ruled by the devil who keeps us subject to him by the fear of death, as Hebrews 2 tells us. Man has placed himself in chains under the banner of the devil and death, and he needs to be set free. And so in the wake of Adam's sin, God embarks on a mission to bring salvation to this fallen world. And he indicates already in Genesis 3.15 that a king will come, Someone who will succeed as king where Adam failed. 
God will send a king who will crush the enemy who Adam, as king, failed to defend the garden against. Friends, from the earliest pages of Scripture, we're told that we have a problem and we need a king to rescue us. And so the rescue plan moves forward. God makes promises to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring that they will be his instrument for bringing blessing to this world under the curse and that he will give them a promised land. And as time goes on, Abraham or God leads Abraham's descendants. He leads his people into and then out of Egypt, through the desert, and into the promised land. Now during this time, it was expected that a king would rule over the people. The king would be established as the ruler under God of the people. And as such, he was supposed to know God's law. He was supposed to fear the the God whose law this was. He was supposed to obey this God. There was an expectation of a king who will come and succeed where Adam failed. We see this expectation in Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 and 20, where God, through Moses, gives the following instructions concerning the future kings of Israel. Here's what we read. And when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a copy of, uh, in a book, a copy of this law, that is the law of Moses, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Whoever was supposed to rule over God's people was supposed to lead God's people in righteousness, and in so doing, he would secure for the the people uh, a place in the land and all the blessings that would come with dwelling with God. In the land. As the king went, so would go the people. Godly leadership was expected to have a trickle down effect. If there was a godly king, he would stir up obedience and true worship. Ungodly leadership would have the opposite effect a a corrupting influence, thus putting the people in danger of being expelled from the land as God had warned in Deuteronomy 28. And so, in short, the king was to promote obedience to God so that the people might experience the promised blessings of God in the land. Now, knowing the role the king was to play in Israel in securing their enjoyment of God's gifts in the promised land helps us to see the true horror of King Ahab's sin. Ahab was meant to fulfill this role of being the righteous ruler who protected the people's enjoyment of God's promised blessings in the land. But instead, he does the exact opposite. He scoffs at God's law, rejects his calling as king, and he steals, doesn't secure, the land which God had given to his people. Now, we don't minimize either sin by saying that Ahab's actions through Jezebel against Naboth were like a parent who abuses their child. We sense that it's a horrendous thing for a parent to terrorize and abuse their child. Not simply because the abuse is wrong, which it is, 
but because the parent has violated a special trust, a special relationship that exists between them and the child. A parent is given to the child to protect them, to nurture them, to to love them, to instruct them. They're to create a a safe and, and loving context in which that child can grow and be instructed in godliness. A child's dependent on his or her parents uh, for their care. And for a parent to violate this relationship is a particularly egregious evil. The recoil that we might feel about a parent violating that trust is how we should respond to Ahab's actions against Naboth. The king is acting in direct opposition to his God-given calling. He's supposed to secure the land for the people through obedience. But instead, he steals the land from the people through great wickedness. Now, verse 15 tells us that Jezebel relays to Ahab that Naboth was dead. And Ahab cheers and makes his way over to his new vineyard. Now, I don't know about you, but I am... uh, a fan of detective shows and, and books, Agatha Christie, uh, Columbo, Sherlock Holmes, Foyle's War. I just enjoy the mental stimulation of trying to unfold the puzzle uh, of a crime alongside uh, the detective. And uh, one part of these shows or books I particularly enjoy is when the sleuth confronts the, uh, the uh, criminal, the suspect, who's growing increasingly arrogant. The perpetrator thinks that they've outsmarted everyone and they've gotten away with the crime. However, it's at just this moment that the clever hero reveals the one mistake that the murderer has made in their plot. Now, if you enjoy these stories as I do, uh, you know that picture of the uh, color draining from the suspect's face as it begins to dawn on them, they've overlooked a crucial part of the puzzle when committing this crime. The thing that they didn't factor into their plan will cause their guilt to be discovered. And that's the type of scene that's unfolding in verses 17 to 24. Ahab, it seems, has gotten away with the crime. Only he's made a critical, a fatal assumption in his crime. He and Jezebel had assumed that there was no one who could hold them accountable, that there was no one who was watching who could check their abuse of power. And this is where Elijah returns to the picture. Ahab had assumed wrongly because the Lord saw what Jezebel and Ahab had done. He saw how Ahab and Jezebel had assumed that they were autocrats, that they were rulers responsible to no one. He saw how Ahab assumed that land was his to do with as he pleased. The Lord saw how Ahab coveted the land for himself, how Jezebel encouraged false testimony, orchestrated murder, stole the land from Naboth, and how Ahab had violated his duties as king. Here was the fatal flaw in this royal conspiracy. There was a witness. God, judge over all. God, through Elijah, brings the verdict of condemnation. Elijah says in verse 20, I've found you, Ahab, Because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond, or free in Israel. 
The family of Ahab is going to be lopped off and their bodies fed to the birds and the dogs because we see in verse 22, Ahab had provoked the Lord to anger and he had led Israel to sin. Now, as verses 25 and 26 tell us, Ahab was acing the evil test. He was no different than any of the pagans who worshipped idols whom God had driven out from the land before Israel. His actions were abhorrent. He is not the king the people were looking for. And yet, when Ahab heard Elijah's message from the Lord, he is deeply affected. His response is one of grief, and the Lord, it appears, is quite pleased with Ahab's response. He's at least enthusiastic about it. He wants to make sure that Elijah notices how Ahab had humbled himself. Now, I don't know about you, but this raises all sorts of questions for me. How are we supposed to understand Ahab's actions? The ESV translation, which I use, subtitles this section, Ahab's repentance. Is that what's going on here? And if so, is Ahab's repentance genuine? If he's repentant, is Ahab in heaven with Elijah right now? How are we to make sense of Ahab's display of grief? Let me try to address this overarching question briefly. How should we understand Ahab's actions? I think we should understand Ahab here to be genuinely broken up by what had happened. The Hebrew word used for humbled here often refers to the proud, God-opposed heart being broken before God. It's the idea of someone who's stood up with a swagger, chest out, defiant, whom God has knocked down and brought low. But it doesn't mean that Ahab had repented. Now, like I said, I think Ahab's repentance was genuine in the sense that he wasn't putting on a show. He was stricken by what he had done, or at least the consequences of what he had done. God though, seems to take Ahab's abasement as sincere, and so we should too. And yet, though this humiliation may have been sincerely expressed, it clearly didn't have a lasting effect. If it was true, lasting repentance, God wouldn't just delay full judgment upon Ahab until the next generation. And we wouldn't have 1 Kings 22 in our Bibles. And so I agree with Dale Ralph Davis's assessment when he says, quote, I hold that Ahab's repentance is sincere at the moment, but not lasting. It was serious, but temporary. When the wash is all done, perhaps we could call Ahab's response remorse rather than repentance. Apparently, Ahab's dejection, though truly felt in the deepest part of his soul, was an instance of what God was saying in 2 Corinthians 7 uh, when he he speaks of of worldly grief. There, Paul says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, if Ahab's grief was not true repentance, it's clear that he is not the king that we are looking for or need. The question that Israel then would be asking as they heard this was, well then, who is? Who is that king? Now, this is where Ahab unintentionally helps us because there's two points of contrast in Ahab that helps us to see the nature of the king that the world has been looking for since the fall. 
When someone says uh, that uh, Ralph is not a very good soccer player because he's slow, we infer from a comment like that that soccer players, at least in this evaluation, are, are not supposed to be slow, but they're supposed to be quick. Well, in a similar fashion, when we hear of Ahab's particular sins, it speaks not only of, of where he failed, uh, but it also speaks to uh, what the ideal king should be, what we should expect. So let's look at these two points of contrast to see the good king that is needed. First, the good king delights in mercy. He does not delight in death. One of the questions that might puzzle us about this passage is that if Ahab's grief is sincere, but it's not true repentance, why does God respond so excitedly, if we can put it that way, uh, about Ahab's response? Is God duped? Is he tricked by it? Well, here's my best shot at an answer, and I want to say that I'm put on to this direction by a new book that I've commended to many of you already, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. But here's my answer. No, I don't think God is fooled or gullible. We know who God is. He's the God of Hebrews 4.13, and no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed uh, uh, to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Of course God's not fooled. He knows exactly the true condition of wicked old Ahab's heart. And he knows how it will expose itself just three years later when Ahab despises the word of the Lord, as we read about in the next chapter. And again, it's why God delays judgment. He doesn't remove judgment from Ahab. But I think what God wants us to see here, I mean, he's not tricked. I think what he wants us to see here is an illustration of Ezekiel 33, 11, where God tells us, surely, I have no pleasure, no delight in, I don't revel in the death of the wicked. But what does God want? He tells us that the wicked turn from his way and live. God's response to Ahab's imperfect, short-lived remorse is not intended to approve a weak view of repentance, but it's intended to correct a weak view of God. You see, we're prone to suspicious views of God that says his default mood is grumpy, hard to please, quick-tempered, maybe cool, that he's someone who's irritated by sinners unless something is done to draw good feelings out of him. Now, Ortland uses a comparison to make just this point. He says, if you catch me off guard, what will leap out of me before I have time to regain my composure? It will likely be grumpiness. Well, that's the natural default reaction. And we seem to expect that that's who God is too. That what streams forth from God, most naturally, if we're to use that manner of speaking, is judgment. And that mercy is just sort of the temporary interruptions in that normal stream. Well, some of the old writers, Jonathan Edwards among them, were men who rightly affirmed that God is just that God is wrath. But they made uh, this distinction though. While God is truly, fully, wonderfully those things, and he does judge the wicked, his judgments, in Edward's words, are his strange work. 
based on Lamentations 3.33, where God says he does not afflict from the heart, Edwards says, and I quote, God has no pleasure in the destruction or calamity of persons. He had rather they should turn and continue in peace. He is well pleased if they forsake their ways, that he may not have occasion to execute his wrath upon them. And don't miss this. He is a God that delights in mercy, and his judgment is his strange work. God's response to Ahab, which might puzzle us, is meant to show us that the God who rules over his people is eager to show mercy. Now, while he won't ultimately stay his hand against evil, as we saw in 1 Kings 20, God delights that sinners should turn from their sin. He delights to show mercy. Now, contrast the actions of God with King Ahab. At the beginning of our passage, King Ahab is sullen and depressed. Why? Because he wants what he can't have. And what cheers Ahab? What gives him joy when he hears that godly Naboth has been put to death? Ahab delights when the royal house's wrath clears the way for him to seize what he wants. But what of God? Yes, his anger and wrath burn against Ahab's wickedness, and they will be poured out. But what is it in this passage that excites God to prod his prophet to say, do you see this? It's the opportunity to show mercy to sinners, to delay judgment. Yes, the king we need wages perfect and righteous war against his enemies, but he is a king who would ultimately look upon, this, upon sinful men with compassion. Even more, he would look upon those who would ultimately reject him and he would not be cheered by their destruction. Now, such a king has come, of course. Jesus of Nazareth. In him, a king has come who images the heart of God, for he himself is God in the flesh. He would show us in the flesh what it means for God not to delight in the death of the wicked when he drew near to Jerusalem, the city that would reject him, put him to death. And he stands there and he shows his heart of mercy because he weeps. Standing there over the city, as we read in Luke 19, we see the king we need. The type of king who shows us God's heart, which delights to show mercy. Jesus is the king we need. We see this also in the second point of contrast. Ahab was a king who stole the enjoyment of God's promises from his people. Naboth's case illustrated Ahab's leadership. He viewed his subjects as being there for him to plunder. He would steal from Naboth the enjoyment of God's promised blessings, specifically the land. Jesus, though, proves to be the king who will secure the enjoyment of God's promises for his people. He's a king who comes not to oppress his people, but to deal benevolently with them. He was someone who came not to kill and steal, but to die and to give. Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Think of how different a kingship this is. 
When Jesus left his heavenly palace, it was not for his own selfish gain. It was not so that he could take what was not rightfully his. He left heaven's throne room to humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he did it so that he might secure for you, if you put your trust in him, your promised rest. That he might be to you God's eternal decree that what God has promised you in him, you shall enjoy forever. So to recap, first, murderous land-stealing Ahab shows us the need God's people still had for a good and righteous king. Secondly, Ahab's particular sins by negative examples show us the king God's people need is one who delights in mercy and secures the enjoyment of God's promises. And third, while Israel strained their eyes forward to see a king who had not yet come, we turn our eyes back to see Jesus, the king who has come. In Jesus, we see a king who delights in showing mercy and using his power to bless. He's a king whose mercy flows freely from him and his judgments, though perfectly administered, are his strange work. Jesus is a king whose power is put to work, not to plunder his subjects, not to serve himself, but to secure for his people the promised blessings of God. Friends, here is the king you and I and every man, woman, and child since Adam need. Jesus, the merciful, benevolent, promise-enjoying, promise-securing king, he's right here. The blessings of his reign come to those who belong to him by faith. So if you have not trusted in him to rule over you, look at the rule he invites you to experience. Look at the merciful and promise-securing character of this king. He's the king the world's been watching for since the garden. He's the king you need. And you can trust a king like this. And for those of us who have already come under the joyful banner of this king, embracing him in faith as our sovereign, look again to him today. See how good it is to be under such a king. Know that even as sinners against this king, such as we surely are, we can come to him again and again and again with our sin because he is a king who does not wish that we should perish And he is a king who finds great joy in showering us in his mercy and his kindness and his patience and his love. We can come to him with our needs and our requests because he is a rich-hearted, generous king who has displayed his desire to secure for you the promised rest of God and the joy of salvation that he gives He gave his life so that this would be. So friends, see afresh today the beauty of this king, the goodness of his reign, that we may say of him with the psalmist, may his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you that you, in wisdom, by your grace, 
have provided the King that we need in Your Son. Jesus, we thank You that You as our King came and You showed to us the mercy of Your heart. You showed to us Your desire to bless, that You are not a King who, who seeks to plunder from us, to rob us of joy, to use us simply for your own ends, but you are a king who, who just delights to bless and bring us into the enjoyment of your reign. So might we trust in you and enjoy that, revel in that. Give us grace to do this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.